Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Luke chapter 20 and beginning to read at verse 17. And we rejoin the narrative of Jesus in the temple where he has just told the parable of the tenants against the religious leaders. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Well, uh... Good evening, great to see you here. My name's Andy, Um, Pete introduced me already. If we haven't met already, I'm the Minister for Students here. I'd love to um, get to know you after the uh, uh, service, but especially if you're a student. Do keep that passage open, I'm going to pray, and then we'll tuck in together. Our Lord God, as we come to these words of Jesus, we pray that your word would be our guide your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and your glory, our supreme concern. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, uh, a friend of mine at university was meeting with her dissertation tutor, and they were discussing um, a number of uh, different things that she was interested in writing um, her dissertation about. And um, uh, she was a Christian, She was concerned to study and do her work in a way that honoured Jesus Christ. And so in the discussion, um, she she tried tentatively to explain to her tutor something of what she believed about one of the particular issues that they were talking about as a Christian. And her tutor said something quite striking. She said, no one cares what the church thinks. No one cares what the church thinks. 
Now, uh, I hope that if you're doing a dissertation this year, you'll find your tutor to be a little bit more friendly and sympathetic than that, I don't know. But here's the question for us this evening. How can you be confident in the gospel of Jesus when so many important, powerful, and intelligent people reject it? How can you trust Jesus Christ with certainty and even have confidence to share the message of Jesus when so many of the great minds find him to be implausible and offensive? Uh, The American author Ernest Hemingway said that all thinking men are atheists. And I guess that there are many, whether it's in our seminar rooms or the classroom, uh, whether it's the politicians who lead the nation or the HR department at your office, I guess there will be many who would agree with that sentiment. After all, uh, at the latest estimate, something like 10% of people attend church regularly, which um, by my um, back-of-the-envelope math suggests that there are a great many who find Jesus to be implausible and untrue. How can you be confident in Jesus when so many of the most intelligent people you've ever met reject him? It may be that you're here this evening and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And if that's you, let me say you are very welcome here this evening. We're thrilled that you're here and we love to have open-minded and inquiring people here who wouldn't call themselves Christians but who are looking at the evidence for themselves. Uh, Maybe you're here this evening and you've seen something of Jesus that's grabbed your attention. But if you're honest, the doubt in the back of your mind is precisely that one. Isn't Christianity a bit of a niche interest? You know, I turn on the TV and it's not stuffed full of Christians speaking about Jesus. Uh, Maybe you're here this evening and you'd call yourself a Christian, but if you're honest, this is one of the biggest sources of doubt for you. That so many reasonable, intelligent, and powerful people dismiss Christianity out of hand. Whether it's the TV sitcom, the newspaper, the opinion former, the politician, or the author. So many of them, and it can undermine our confidence in Jesus. I wonder if it's one of the reasons why um, many of us find it hard to speak about Jesus boldly and openly to others. I remember sitting down with a group of blokes from my last church and talking about why they find it hard to share the gospel with their colleagues. And I expected there to be a whole range of reasons why they said they found it hard. But there was basically, actually, only one reason. It said in various different ways, which was fear of loss of reputation. Fear of loss of reputation important and powerful people within their office would find it to be foolish and implausible and maybe even offensive if they started speaking openly about Jesus and they feared that. Well look, Luke's gospel, he tells us at the beginning in chapter one, is written to give us certainty concerning the things we've been taught. His whole agenda throughout the book is to give us a certain trust in Jesus Christ and confidence to proclaim him widely to the world. Here in Luke 20, we join Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. He's rode into town as king and sat himself down in God's place, in God's capital city as king. And um, you might expect that the religious authorities in Jesus' day would have been rejoicing to see God's king come into God's temple. But instead, they oppose him and reject 
reject him. They interrogate him and they're appalled by him. And Jesus consistently in this dialogue answers their questions and he turns things around so we see that it's actually not Jesus who's in the dock but his questioners. It's a dialogue that gives us confidence to trust in Jesus and positive confidence because it shows us the greatness of Jesus like a sort of telescope to see the stars. We see the burning brilliance of Jesus Christ in this chapter but also confidence negatively because it places those who oppose Jesus under a microscope and it shows us the reality of the opposition. And so let's dive in together. The first thing that we see in this dialogue with Jesus is the dishonesty of Jesus' opponents. The dishonesty of Jesus' opponents. Look down at verse 19 with me. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest Jesus immediately because they knew he'd spoken this parable, that's the parable of the tenants, against them. But they were afraid of the people. So now who are these opponents of Jesus, these leaders, the teachers of the law and the chief priests? Well, they're, um, they're both the religious and political leaders of the nation of Israel. They are the establishment They are the opinion formers. Uh, The chief priests were the the guardians of social and spiritual acceptability. If you fell foul of the chief priests, you'd be barred from the temple and the religious life of Israel. Uh, The teachers of the law were the deciders of what constituted appropriate and politically correct talk and ideas. They were the opinion formers, the thought leaders in the world of first century Israel. And the Pharisees were their lay enforcers. You see here, those who oppose Jesus, they're the people who, they were the people who handed out promotions and honours. They would have been the people who decided public opinions, values and morality. They were the people who declared what ideas would be celebrated and who should be no-platformed. That's who we're talking about. And they hate, they hate Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 19, they looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he'd spoken this parable against them. Uh, Jesus had exposed their sinful motivations in the parable. Uh, Just look back at verse 14 with me for a moment, just before our reading. Uh, The parable of the tenants, verse 14, when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said, Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. See, it was the appalling, the gruesome picture of tenants who see the air of the vineyard and they say to themselves, we want it for ourselves. And so they must get rid of him. It was the picture of of a people who want God's stuff but don't want God. A people who want to live in God's world but don't want to thank him or honour him. And here we see that when they hear the truth about themselves, these establishment figures, these opinion formers, these leaders, these powerful people, they hate Jesus because of it and they want to get rid of him, just as the parable had said. But of course, they've got a PR problem, haven't they? They're afraid of what the people will think. The people are quite positive about Jesus, and so they come up with a plan. 
And it's a clever plan. Verse 20, keeping a close watch on him. Interesting how often in Luke's gospel the, um, the establishment keep a close watch on Jesus to bring him down. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Notice in that verse the contrast between their speech and their motives. We're told they pretended to be honest or pretended to be sincere. Uh, They come to Jesus and they present themselves as people with an honest question for him. Uh, Yes, it's a tricky one, but they've been thinking it through. But Luke wants us to know that it's not a reasonable or honest use of the intellect here. They're not really weighing up the evidence for Jesus. They're just pretending. They're hypocrites. They're duplicitous. They'll say anything because their goal is to catch Jesus, to trap him and to hand him over to be killed. You see the contrast between their speech and their motives? Uh, We mustn't miss this. Because in verse 21 and verse 22, it's a very sweet-sounding, very reasonable question, isn't it? Verse 21, the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You know, butter wouldn't melt, would it? Jesus, we think you're brilliant. But there is this one thing. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Do you see, it sounds um, to all the world reasonable, reasoned, intellectually coherent, sophisticated, and honest. But Luke wants us to know that they're not being honest. They're out to catch Jesus, to trap him. They want to get rid of him. Uh, Look, I was saying last week that we love to have people among us asking their questions. Whether you're a Christian or not, I hope you don't leave your brain at the door. We want people who are asking the big questions and looking for answers. But we need to see that this is not that. This is not people asking their questions in order to get to know the answer. This is people putting up an aggressive barrier to get rid of Jesus. This is the intellect used as a weapon. Now, um, I think we all know that people can have quite a a stark difference between what they say and what's going on inside. Um, I was thinking about uh, my first year of university when I went to look at a number of different houses as places to move into for my second year. So a group of us, we all went down to the sort of part of town where all the students lived, and um, we we went into the first place, and the prospective landlord um, started in the kitchen, and it looked pretty good, and he took us to the living room, and, um, well, you know, it it, it was small, and and it was uncomfortable, but, you know, it's a student house, and it had a living room, which is pretty good. Um, We then went to the bathroom at the back of the house, and the floor... I think it'd be generous to say it was at a 45-degree angle. Uh, I mean, the, the back of the house was falling off. And, um, and I said to him, I mean, it, it's an awkward moment when you realise the back of the house is falling off and the guy is there with the paperwork saying, do, do you want to move in? You know, and, and I said, do, you know, does it, does it concern you that the back of the house is falling off? And he said, well, 
You see, the thing is, if that happens, it's, it's really my problem, not yours, isn't it? And, and I, I mean, I was thinking, I can see a few ways that it might be my problem. I mean, I might be taking a bath. Um, yep. We know, we know what it is to see um, someone's words be a long way from their motives. And here are people who will say anything. They will use their reason to get anywhere that gets rid of Jesus. And to be honest, anyone who's tried to share the good news about Jesus with someone will know what it's like when someone keeps throwing up question after question. And it's not because they want an answer, it's because they want to keep Jesus at arm's length. We need to see the dishonesty of Jesus' opponents here. And we need to see it because we feel the pressure, don't we? You watch that sitcom where Christians are constantly portrayed as idiots or hypocrites or worse. You go to that lecture where the lecturer just takes little snipey comments at Christians. You read the book by the new atheist or you feel the pressure of the HR department if you say anything about Jesus. We feel the pressure from the establishment, don't we? And we need to see that that is not just honest, reasonable weighing up of the facts when it happens. Sinful people living in God's world have motive for wanting to get rid of God. And it's motive that shapes arguments and builds pressure. Uh, Aldous Huxley was one of the great um, uh, sort of uh, liberal humanists of the 20th century. He wrote these words of great, um, uh, uh, very candid words, I think. He said this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem of pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain kind of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our revolt. We would deny the world had any meaning whatsoever. Do you see how, um, how candid that is? We had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. The anti-Christian agenda that we feel from the establishment has motives. It begins with a desire to get rid of God and is not simply reasoned. And here we see the dishonesty of Jesus' opponents, not merely weighing the evidence, not merely asking their question, but wanting to get rid of Jesus of Nazareth. The dishonesty of Jesus' opponents. But then secondly... The authority of Jesus in this section. The authority of Jesus. So here it is. Here's the big question. Verse 22. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And it's meant to be an unanswerable question. It's the sort of question like, when did you stop beating your wife? You know, there's not really a right answer to this sort of question. If Jesus says yes... 
he'll lose the support of the people because Israel was supposed to be a theocracy, but it was occupied by Rome. The emperor demanded loyalty and taxation to pay for Roman rule and Roman wars. To say, yes, you ought to pay taxes was like saying, yes, you should support the Nazis in occupied France or something like that. So if Jesus said yes, he'd lose the support of the people. But if he said no, well, that would play right into their hands. He could be arrested for sedition. He could be put on trial and executed precisely for opposing Caesar. And that's what they want. See, it's a moment of genius. It is politically dynamite to ask this question. It's, um, it's something that wouldn't be out of place on House of Cards or the West Wing. They think they've snookered Jesus with this question. What's he going to say? And yet Jesus gives an answer so simple, so powerful, so unavoidably true, that in verse 26, they're astonished by his answer and they became silent It's an answer that's so famous. It's almost a cliche, isn't it? Have a look down at verse 24 with me. Show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Uh, Now look, there's an important principle here for Christians. And the principle, I guess, in the first part of um, what Jesus says is this. Paying your taxes is a spiritual issue. Paying your taxes is a matter of obedience to God. Romans 13 says the authorities that exist have been established by God. If you don't like the government, you have the privilege in this country of voting against them. But if you don't pay them what you owe them, you are rebelling against God. We need to be clear about that. Uh, A friend of mine had um, a builder doing work on his house, and the builder said, you can save 800 quid on this job if you pay by cash. And I'm thankful that my Christian friend said no, because paying our taxes is a spiritual issue, whether it's the tradesman, the cleaner, or the tax return. It is a matter of obeying God to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But look, the really interesting thing in this verse, the really important thing, the thing not to miss, is the final clause That is the devastating sting in the tail. Have a look again at verse 25. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. I mean, it's a clever answer, isn't it? The very fact that the coin in their pocket has Caesar's face on it shows you that they are under Caesar's authority. Of course the coin belongs to Caesar. It's got his image on it. It's got his likeness. But the real question is, whose image is borne by the person holding the coin in their hand? Whose inscription do they bear? Who owns the man who owns the coin? And the book of Genesis back in the Old Testament gives us the answer because it tells us that God made human beings in his own image. God made us in his image, and so we belong to him. Um, The coin has Caesar's face on it, and so you know it's his. And the human being has God's image on him or her, and so that you know we belong to him. Uh, That word where it says give to Caesar, um, the the newer um, Bibles in the pews, if you have them, say give back. And that's helpful because it's the idea of fulfilling an obligation 
You know, if you lend me a book, um, good luck, but it is my obligation to return it. If you let me stay in your home for a week, it's my obligation to return it in a good state as I found it. So here's the question. What do you owe to the God who made you in his image and gave you every breath you breathe and every good thing you enjoy? And the answer is we owe him everything. Don't we? We owe him our whole lives because he's given us everything. There's no part of me, no activity, no thought, no relationship that does not belong to God. You know, imagine if you came back from um, term at university um, to, your, to your parents for the holidays, but when you got home, you didn't say a word to them. You just took yourself off up to your room. And um, when mealtime came, you came down the stairs and you, um, you took your food and you took that back up to your room. And when they came up to ask how you were, you said, I don't know you, nor do I owe you anything. That's what happens when, um, when we don't honour God with our lives, when we don't thank him, when we don't praise him, when we don't live for him. He made us, he's given us everything And to ignore him is not to give him what we owe him. He's given us so much. There's no part of me that doesn't belong to him. The great mistake that the leaders make is they think either Jesus has less authority than Caesar, in which case, yes, pay taxes, or that he's a rival authority to Caesar, in which case don't. But what they miss is that Caesar and everyone else belongs to the God who made them. He's the greater authority. Do you see, we can never put Jesus in a box and then have other boxes in our lives that say things like um, work or school or university or um, hobbies or relationships or family or anything like that because Jesus owns all of it. We belong to him. There should be one box, Jesus, with everything inside of it, full of thanks and praise and wholehearted obedience. And the warning that Jesus gives to the establishment is that not to recognize that is to invite judgment on ourselves. That's what Jesus meant back in verse 18 when he said, everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed See, the authority of Jesus, the God who we belong to, whose image we bear, who we owe everything to, is standing before these people and they will do everything in their power to get rid of him intellectually. See, the thing is, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus had gone about offering forgiveness and eternal life to anyone, anyone who'd humble themselves and come to him and receive it and accept him as king. Also, I mean, scumbags of the highest order, um, Zacchaeus, just back a page, had come to Jesus and known forgiveness. Jesus had said anyone who comes to him like a little child can be forgiven. But when he got to the temple, he broke down and wept because he said, you won't turn to me. And so you'll be destroyed under judgment. It's a great warning for the person who uses hostile arguments, who uses their intellect to get rid of Jesus. Again, let me say, we love honest questions. 
but this is not that. But more than that, it's a word of confidence to us as Christians. You can trust Jesus. You can have confidence in the gospel precisely because the establishment that stands against him, the intellectuals, the politicians, the, um, the sitcom writers, the teachers, everyone who says no one cares what the church thinks about that, well, they will meet him either as the rescuer who will forgive them or as judge and we can have confidence in the great authority of Jesus. 35 years after Jesus had this conversation, the temple was destroyed under judgment. The Roman Empire of Caesar, well, next time you go on holiday to Italy, you can see what's left of it. The archaeologists have dug it up. There is no establishment, no powerful person, no clever argument that will outlast the God who made them and to whom they owe everything. And so if we feel isolated, if we feel niche and few and small, well, we can have confidence in this one, both by seeing negatively the um, the dishonesty of the opposition, but positively by seeing the great authority of the one who has called us and forgiven us. Let me pray. Our Lord God, we pray that you would indeed give us certainty, confidence in our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and confidence as we proclaim him in his name and for his glory. Amen.